Hi, this is Chris Kipp, lead pastor of Renaissance Church in Richmond, Texas. Thank you for streaming or downloading this podcast today. I hope this resource blesses you. If you haven't joined us at a worship gathering or at a house church yet, we want you to come. You can find all that information and more at rin-church.org. I pray that you are encouraged today by the proclamation of God's word. have a copy of scripture you want to turn with me we're going to be in John 11 this morning and uh, we're going to read a big healthy chunk together and it's it's a good it's a good portion we're going to be reading today we're in the midst of a series called I am Jesus in his own words and as we planted this church we thought it would be so uh, crucial and important for us to go back to the source Because all of us come in here today, and um, if you have been a believer for years, or maybe you're still checking this thing out, you all come uh, from a background. We all do. We have things from our background, how we grew up, maybe uh, our faith tradition growing up, and all that stuff shapes us in certain ways. And we need to come back to a place of clarity, of coming back to the source, the, the purity of what Jesus said. And so that's why we've, we've started with this series of Jesus in his own words. We're looking at the seven I am statements from the Gospel of John. John's Gospel is unique from all the other Gospels in that he really focuses on Jesus' identity. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today is the identity of Jesus And uh, we have a lot to cover today, so um, I'm excited about this word. And you have this going for you, okay? Um, I was a worship leader like Amando here for 20 years, which means I sat through a bazillion sermons, and 98% of them were too long. (laughs) So this morning, I'm going to do my best to... um, to, to speak this clearly and concisely, but I think there's something special in this word for us today in John 11. So we're gonna start reading here in verse one, and we're gonna go all the way uh, to verse 44 this morning. So let me start us off here in verse one. Now a man was sick, Lazarus from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. And it was her brother Lazarus who was sick. So the sisters sent a message to him, Lord, the one you love is sick. When Jesus heard it, he said, this sickness will not end in death, but it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha her sister, and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Quick side note, something you should know about Jesus is that he had friends. He was, he was the one who had these close, close friends outside of his circle of 12 disciples. And then we know there was a wider circle of, of 72 plus people that were following Jesus around. And he had very, very close friends, people that he loved dearly. Verse 7, then after that, he said to his disciples, let's go to Judea again. Rabbi, the disciples told him, just now the the Jews tried to stone you, and you're going there again? 
Aren't there 12 hours in a day, Jesus answered. If anyone walks during the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks during the night, he does not stumble because the light is not in him. Here's what he's saying right here. God has appointed a timeline for Jesus to live and to walk on the earth. It was the light of day. And God was in charge of that timeline, not the Jews. In fact, we read last week how Jesus said, I have the right to lay down my life and I have the right to take it up again, meaning no one will harm me until God's appointed time. So this light of day, he's talking about, we have light today because it's not the appointed time. Verse 11, he said this and then he told them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm on my way to wake him up. Then the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will get well. Jesus, however, was speaking about his death, but they thought he was speaking about natural sleep. So Jesus then told them plainly, Lazarus has died. I'm glad for you that I wasn't there so that you may believe. But let's go to him. Verse 16, then Thomas called twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's go too so that we may die with him. Have y'all seen Winnie the Pooh or the new Christopher Robin movie? And there's Eeyore, right? That's Thomas. Thomas is Eeyore. He's Let's go die with Jesus. He's the downer. Debbie Downer Thomas right there, okay? Verse 17, when Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now, context. The Jewish people believed that when someone died, their spirit would linger around the body for three days. So what's happening here is there's, and this detail is important for us, he's saying that Lazarus is really, really dead, okay? There would be no denying the miraculous power of Jesus in what's about to occur. Verse 18, Bethany was near Jerusalem, less than two miles away. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother. As soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been there, my brother wouldn't have died. Yet even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him, I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world. Verse 28, having said this, she went back and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher's here and he's calling for you. As soon as Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. The Jews were with her in the house, consoling her, saw that Mary got up quickly and went out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to cry there. 
As soon as Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you put him, he asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. Jesus wept. And so the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, couldn't he who opened the blind man's eyes also have kept this man from dying? Verse 38, then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Remove the stone, Jesus said. Martha, the dead man's sister, told him, Lord, there's already a stench because he has been dead four days. Again, that clue, he's really, really dead. Jesus said to her, didn't I tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the crowd standing here, I said this so that they may believe you sent me. After he said this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out bound, hand and foot with linen strips, and with his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to him, uh, said to them, unwrap him and let him go. This is God's word. Just imagine that moment. Imagine being a, a Jewish person who's there mourning, right? You know about this family, you knew Lazarus, and you're mourning around this tomb, around their home, and then all of a sudden this Messiah Jesus comes through, right? He finally gets there, and he opens that, has them open that tomb, and he says, Lazarus, come out, and just imagine that scene, I mean, it says that Lazarus was still wrapped. I mean, he was like a, a mummy, right? He had the linen strips. Uh, some scholars think that there was so much cloth wrapped around them that it was almost like 100 pounds worth of extra cloth. I don't know if you have like really he like heavy clothing that you wear, maybe hunting or certain times of the year, right? And just imagine Lazarus doing the, 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 the dance, right? He's hopping out of the tomb. His face is still wrapped and he gets out. And, and this amazing miracle has happened. He was already decomposing. His body stunk, right? And now the town is buzzing. I mean, people are excited. They can't believe what Jesus has done. The, the word is spreading throughout the village. And it says that even the high priest and, and the Pharisees were plotting. How could they kill Jesus? But also, how could they get rid of Lazarus? They wanted to stomp the story out. There's a um, historical moment. Uh, a pastor, his name was Paul Robert Schneider, and he was the very first uh, Protestant pastor that was martyred at the hands of the Nazis. He was um, an obscure pastor. He was the pastor of a small uh, rural church out in the countryside of Germany, and uh, he had no real um, claim to fame, no special um, theological anything, I mean, to his name. He was just a regular pastor out in the middle of the country. And at this time period, there was this kind of bizarre belief 
that um, the Nazis held that um, basically it was a supernatural justification for their, their ideology and for their cruelty. And so they required that their, the, the Nazi followers believe that Horst Wessel, the, the, the man who had authored this hymn of their flag that they sang, that they, they, they made their, their people believe, they taught them that he had resurrected from the dead and that he had, he had formed an eternal storm troop in the sky, like a spiritual force that this, this resurrected Nazi hero had formed. In fact, there's a, a, a Nazi uh, propaganda publication that, that said this, how high Horst Wessel towers over that Jesus of Nazareth. Do you see what they're doing there? That Jesus who pleaded that the bitter cup be taken from, from him. How unattainably high all horsed wessels stand above Jesus. So this pastor has a 17-year-old boy die in his congregation. And this boy just happened to be a member of the Nazi youth. And so this Nazi commander comes to the funeral where the pastor is officiating the funeral and the Nazi commander interrupts his, his, uh, his speech and says, this young man will be resurrected with Horst Wessel in the eternal storm troop. And the pastor kind of gently, um, gently corrects, right? He knows this is a, a man of power, a leader. He says, I, I do not know about Horst Wessel or the eternal storm troop, but may the Lord bless his departure from this life to the next. Well, the Nazi leader doesn't like this correction in front of everyone, and so he states it again. This young man has been resurrected with Horst Wessel in the, in the eternal storm troop. And this pastor, less gently this time, says to him, I protest. This is a church ceremony, and as a Protestant pastor, I am responsible for the pure teaching of the Holy Scriptures. Well, that lands Paul Schneider in jail. His crime was to insist upon the uniqueness of the resurrection of Jesus, that there was nothing higher, no one was greater or higher, no other had resurrected like Jesus had resurrected. And so he's in and out of jail. They're trying to make him bend his position or abandon his post as pastor, and he would not. And finally, they put him in a concentration camp, and he would begin preaching to all the prisoners in the concentration camp. And so they're like, we've got to stop this guy. They put him in solitary confinement. And in his cell, there was this tiny little window at the very top, and he would pull himself up, and he would shout the gospel so that other prisoners could hear him, uh, those that were around his cell. And then there was one Easter morning where thousands of, of, of the prisoners were being gathered into this big yard area of this concentration camp. And he pulls himself up to this window and he shouts, comrades, listen to me, this is Pastor Schneider. People are tortured and murdered here. So the Lord says, 
I am the resurrection and the life. It's a powerful story. He was, not long after that, he was uh, given the lethal injection. He'd been tortured and all that, but they finally just killed him. And he preached to the end. We hear that story, we think, wow, like what courage. Right? What, what an amazing story of a man who stood his ground, who, who just, who, who held to it, but yet at the end, his life was snuffed out, right? End of the story. Well, I don't think that's the lasting message of his story. He wrote a, a letter to his six children and his wife, and in the letter he said this, though God's hand is not seen in every deed, he's there in our every hour of need. You see, this I am statement of Jesus, when he says, I am the resurrection and the life, here's what I think that means for us. I think that means that you and I can get through anything and that we can follow Jesus in everything because we have hope and power right now. We can get through anything and follow him in everything. However, this story, I think, touches a nerve for us because three times Jesus is question. Did you hear it as we read it? Martha runs out to meet him. He's not even in the village yet. She goes to where he is and she says, Lord, if you had been here, like, where were you? We sent a messenger to you. Why didn't you come? If you had been here, my brother would not have died. We hear it again with Mary. She runs out after she gets the word that Jesus is asking for her and she throws herself down at his feet. She's weeping and she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then that, the, the mourners that were gathered around that tomb, right? And they're, they're one, of, one part of them are saying, oh, look how much he loves him. And the other part are saying, Really, he loves him? He loved him to death because couldn't he who opened the eyes of that blind man have prevented this man from dying? He's being questioned. Let me ask you this. Have you ever questioned? Have you ever questioned? Have you ever questioned God? Like, why? Why would you allow this? What, what, what's going on? Why, why would you let this happen to my family member or to me? What is going on? Have you ever questioned God? I think this passage really hits on three core questions. The first question that we find, I think, in, in here is, can he help us? Like, can God really help us? Like, a lot of people pray for a lot of things, but can he really help us? Well, I think this passage speaks to this. In verse 4, we see um, this glimpse into this divine knowledge of Jesus. You see, over and over again in the Gospel of John, he's trying to show us, look, he was divine. He really was divine. He was God in flesh. You, you, you need to see this about him. And in verse 4, um, he gets the message from these messengers, right? And he says to them prophetically, this sickness will not end in death. 
Right? He, he speaks with divine knowledge. It will not end in death. We see this again in verse 11 where, um, where Jesus says to his disciples, hey, let's go to him. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. Now, here's the thing. It's not like he got a text message. Like, you know, he, he didn't have the advantages that we have. It's not like he saw Mary's Facebook page. He's like, oh my gosh, Lazarus died, right? No, he's speaking with divine knowledge. There's no way he could have known that at that moment, Lazarus had passed away. Yet he speaks with this divine knowledge. Our friend Lazarus is asleep. Again, in verse 23, we see this. Um, he says, your brother will rise again. He tells Martha that your brother will rise again. He speaks with this divine prophetic knowledge. But we also see this, that he um, not only does he have divine knowledge, but he has this divine identity. We saw it back in that confession. He says um, that the son of God may be glorified through it, right? This will not end in death but it's for God's glory. And the Son of God will be glorified through it. Who's he talking about? He's talking about himself. He's claiming, I am divine. I am the Son of God, and I will be glorified through this. We also saw it in, in verse 27 as he's with Martha, and she says to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah the Son of God who comes into the world. So he has this divine identity. John's telling us over and over again, he truly was divine. He really was. He has this divine knowledge and this divine identity, but then we get to the divine power. He has power when he says to that tomb, Lazarus come out, like literally by the word of his mouth. He doesn't touch the man. He doesn't breathe on the man. He's distance away, and he calls out in this loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And by the sound of his voice, a dead man who's already decomposing comes back to life. He has divine power. Some scholars say that had Jesus not specified Lazarus come out, that literally every tomb would have opened and every dead person would have come out because it was like a blanket statement that he's so powerful with his voice that just one word could raise a dead man. He has divine knowledge, right? Divine identity, and he has a power that is absolutely of God. So can he help us? Absolutely. Absolutely. He can help us. But I think there's a, just a, a question underneath that question of can he help us. And that question is this. Does he care? Like he can, but does he Care. Well, I, I believe this passage tells us, yes, he really, really cares. Have you ever been in that place where the sisters were at? Have you ever had a moment where something really tragic happened? Maybe some of you have maybe lost a child, or you lost a family member, or something terrible happened where you said, why? 
Like, do you care? Let me ask you this. If he didn't care, why would he send himself into the world? Like, if God didn't care for you, why would he come? Why would Jesus enter? Why would Jesus, this one who's divine, right? We saw that. He's fully divine. And he, why would he come in, in, to our flesh and deal with all the stuff that we deal with? Deal with? Why, why would he limit his divinity by entering into a human body if he didn't care? In Martha's confession, right, she says, I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world. His very presence here shows us that he cares for us. In, in, in Matthew 1, if you were to read the beginning of Matthew's gospel, and it talks about Jesus' birth being proclaimed, right? The shepherds are out in the field, and the angels begin to sing. And then and Matthew says this, that it was a fulfillment of Isaiah's words, right? The virgin will be with birth, or the virgin will be with child, and his name will be called Emmanuel. Do you know what that word means, Emmanuel. It means God with us, like God here. His very presence here tells us that he cares for us. We also see this in our favorite memory verse, right? Verse 35, we can all remember that one verse. We all know one verse, Jesus wept, right? That was our favorite verse in Bible drill, Jesus wept. You see, we see in this passage that he's fully God and yet he has the heart of a human, right? Jesus was moved. He wept over his friend passing. In verse 33 and 38, it said that he was deeply moved, right? And, and if you were to look back into that, the language of those verses, that the, the Greek there, it's not sadness. He is angry. The, the, the words would be like the snorting of a horse. He's like, like, he's like, ah, like he's deeply moved. And John, the, the, the writer of this gospel is recording this for us. And remember, John's not a mind reader. He's not a psychic thinking, I think Jesus is angry. He's not showing it right now, but I think he's upset. No, John sees like Jesus is upset. He's moved. He's angry. But why? Why would he be angry in this moment? Uh, the text doesn't really tell us. We can make, I think, some educated guesses. The one would be that he's just been questioned three times and he's surrounded by disbelief and maybe there's something in him that he's like, do you not see everything I've done? Have you not heard everything I've said? Like, I'm, I'm not, I'm here for you. He's being questioned. I think another reason is that he is the one, the word of life. The John 1 in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. By him, all things were made. That Jesus is the word who created all things, and everything he created was good. And now he's standing in the epicenter of sin and consequence and disease, and death, 
and sorrow. And I think there's something in him, the, the purity of God's heart that sits in the middle of this epicenter of, of destruction of sin and brokenness and is just angry. Like these intruders have come into his good creation and he's just upset. He has the heart of a human and he is moved. I, uh, I don't know if you guys have ever done this before. Have you ever tried to contest your property taxes? Have y'all ever done that before? <laughs> yeah, if you pay your property taxes, if you're renting, you're like, who cares? But if you're a homeowner, right, you, uh, you get that bill every, I think uh, it's right before the end of the year and it's just like, oh, you know, the, 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 the gut punch. And I remember I went in with my neighbor. My neighbor is a realtor in the area. He's been in this area, I think since the late 60s doing, doing realty. He, he does appraisal work. So this guy is knowledgeable. He knows our area. He knows everything about our area. He brought, I mean, a mountain worth of comps. And so he goes with me into this meeting. I go to the, the county and, and we're looking at the comps and they have, you know, this computer software that tells them what they think things are worth. And I remember this man who spent decades of his life in this area doing this exact work, showing over and over again, no, 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 here's the real value. Here's the real value. And them saying, Sorry, I mean, on our computer here, it just tells us it's worth this much. And he, he was visibly shaking. He was so mad. His face was red. I just wanted to carry him out of there. Like, please don't have a heart attack and die. Like, like it's not worth it, right? Like, come on out of here. He was so mad. And I just think there's something about that with Jesus there. He was visibly angry because he cares so deeply. Does he care? Absolutely he cares for us. Not only is he present, but here we see this, this heart of Jesus that weeps and that moves because of the brokenness that his people walk through. So can he help us? Yeah. Does he care? Yeah. Maybe one other question that just goes just a hair deeper than that. What is his motivation? Okay, you can help. Yes, you care. But what drives you? Have you ever wondered why one time God works one way and then another time he works another way? Have you, uh, if you were a new believer and you just had this conviction of like, I need to give $100 to my, my friend who's struggling and you write a $100 check and you give it to him and then like a week later, someone just randomly gives you a $100 bill and you're like, whoa, what? Oh my gosh, God just returned back to me what I gave, right? You just have that confirmation for him of like, oh, that was so good. And then right, years later, you're walking with God and you have a conviction of like, oh, I need to write this check and then help somebody and you write the check and you think, well, just maybe, maybe he'll just return it. I don't know, you know, and then nothing happens. It's like he works one way one time and then another time it's like, what? Or, or think about Jesus' miracles, right? Sometimes he would touch the leper and they'd be clean. Sometimes he'd say, go show yourself to the priest. And on the way to the priest, they would get healed. It's like over and over again, he works differently. You see, our God is always faithful but he's never formulaic. He's always faithful, but
but he's never formulaic. He's not like the machine that you put your quarter in and pull the lever and out pops the prize every time. That's not how he works because he's not formulaic. And here's the good news about that. Every time your kid wants something, if you're a parent, you're probably not gonna give it to him. Like my kids ask me all the time, dad, dad, can I have candy right now? And it's like literally eight o'clock. They go to bed at 8.30. Dad, dad, I got Easter candy. Dad, I got candy. Can, can I eat the candy? No, you cannot eat the candy. We say, uh, it's time to brush your teeth. All hell breaks loose, right? They're all screaming. They're crying. They, they don't want to brush their teeth. But every night we make them brush their teeth. Why? Because we're not controlled by their whims and their wishes. Because that would be really harmful for them. See, here's the thing about our God. He's not formulaic because it wouldn't be good for us if he was controlled by our every whim and wish. He is motivated by something very different than just our whims and our wishes. He reveals it to us in this passage when he says to us, This will not end in death, but it is for the glory of God that the Son of God may be glorified through it. See, the only thing better than God wanting to respond to your whims and wishes is that he would get glory. Let me tell you, that's really, really good. We want God to glorify himself because any God that exists for our wishes and whims is a small God that we really cannot trust because if he cared for us, he wouldn't let us have all the stuff we asked for. It's for his glory. He's motivated by his glory. The primary driver of what what God does in us or what he doesn't do for us is always about glory. Not my glory, not your glory, his glory. Jesus reveals to us the very motivation of God that the son of God might be glorified through it. We read this story in reverse. We all know Lazarus is going to rise again, right? Don't worry, hang on to the end. But imagine being in the middle of the story. Imagine being a Mary or a Martha and watching your brother's life fade away. Imagine him losing control of his body and gasping for air, and you're just waiting on him hand and foot, thinking any minute now, Jesus is gonna show up. He's gonna get here, it's gonna be okay. He's gonna heal him just like we've seen him heal all these other people. It's gonna be great. Just hang on, right? Have faith, believe, and you believe, and you have faith, and you wait, and you wait, and Jesus never shows. And your brother passes away. And you start to talk like this. You know, when my brother was here, he would. I I used to have a brother. When, when, When he was here around the house, he would always do that thing. And they're closing 
the chapter, they're mourning a loss. And just imagine that moment. You know, I think there's probably some things in our life that are like that. Where we, we're in the middle of something. Like you're in the middle of that story right now. And here's what I want to tell you. You can say glory because it's not the end of the story. Like right now, you may be walking through something really, really hard. Or maybe you've gone through something really, really difficult. Maybe you've endured some loss, some things that maybe I can't even wrap my mind around the things that you have walked through. And here's the thing. When you, at some point, maybe when you cross from this life to the next and you look back, I don't think you're going to see a life that went exactly like you thought it should or would. You're probably not going to see that. But here's what I think you are going to see when you look back. You're going to see glory. That when you look back in all the twists and the turns and the times that you thought Jesus was going to show up, and he didn't, at some point you're going to look back and say, no, 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 glory. That was glory. Some of you are going to be healed. Some of you, you're, you're going to get sick and we're going to come around you and we're going to pray over you and we're going to speak God's word over you and we're going to believe with you and we're going to stand with you and you're going to get radically healed and we're going to say glory. Some of you are going to go through financial hardship. You're going to, like the bottom will drop out of your life, right? You will hit the bottom of your finances and you will do everything you can. You'll, you'll read the books and you'll, you'll get the, 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 the webinar and you'll say the prayers and you'll believe the word of God. And then God's going to move and rescue you. And we're going to say, glory, praise God. Some of you, your, your relationships are going to fall apart. You and your spouse may just go through the most terrible time. You, may, you might even think we hate each other. And then some, by some miraculous mercy, somehow God's going to restore that. And you're going you're gonna to love each other like you've never loved each other before. It will be crazy awesome. And we're all going to say, glory. And then some of you may walk through something and you do everything right. You pray, you believe, you have faith, you, you get the church around you, we're surrounding you, we're believing with you, and then that child is still gonna die. And somehow, some way, we're still gonna be able to say, It's not the end of the story. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He is. It's not just a future hope out there somewhere. Surely my brother will rise again at the end of the day, at the end of, of the age. And he says, no, 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 no. That's not an event. The resurrection is me. Jesus is the resurrection 
in the life. I think that Pastor Schneider, who fought to the end, maybe praying in his cell, God, I can't wait for you to get me out of here. I'm going to stand for you to the end. I can't wait for you to rescue me. I don't know how you're going to do it. Lord, I just believe you can. And so, Lord, would you just rescue me out of the cell? And yet every day he's following Jesus in everything. He's being tortured. He's being beaten. He's being um, uh, totally humiliated in front of all all these people, and yet every day he gets up and he does it again and again and again. And still, at the end of the story, his life is snuffed out. And we can say, I think he would say to us, glory. That's glory. That you and I can get through anything and we can actually follow him in everything because he is the resurrection and the life. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Renaissance Church Sermon Podcast. To contact us or find out more information, visit rin-church.org.